Who are you? Is a really important question to be asking, isn't it? Who are you? Uh, I think we normally answer questions like that by putting it in relation to something else. So when someone says, who are you? We could think, well, who am I um, in relation to my family? I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a brother, I'm a sister. Or or you might think, well, who am I in relation to my vocation? Uh, I'm a a teacher or a mechanic or or something else. Um, or, Or maybe in relation to my interests. Um, who am I? Well, I, I like to paint or to dance or to run or to fish or these are my interests. Now, when we think about the question, who are you? It can become quite flighty. It's a question which needs to be anchored down. It needs a reference to be given meaning. Uh, baptism is a declaration of identity. It answers the question, who are you, at the most fundamental level, because it answers the question as who you are in relation to the living God. Now, the passage that Bryony read for us goes deep into this question. We're going to think about it together. Uh, Paul is, is writing a letter to church in Ephesus, uh, and at this point in the letter, we read just from the middle of it, um, he is praying for them. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, He keeps asking in prayer that they will have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know God better. And what that means, he says, it is to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. He's saying that they will know God better as they know how great is the power that he has worked upon them. Who are you? Uh, When we face a question like that full on, face on, we will quickly find ourselves considering who God is, what God has done, and who we are in relation to him. Uh, In this passage, I want us to note three things that Paul wants his readers to know. Three things he wants them to know are these. He He wants them to know your plight, know you are precious, and know your purpose. There we go. All gone up very quickly there. Um, first of all, know your plight. He begins in the first verse, Brian, he read, um, know your peril, I put there. Oh, go for that. Know your peril. Uh, verse 1 says, as for you, you were dead. That's the human predicament laid bare. A, a miserable description. It puts the human situation in the starkest of terms. Dead. There isn't any flattery here. You were dead, he says to them. What does he mean by it? Well, first of all, uh, he means they were dead because they carried out their life in active resistance to God. He says that in verse 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Transgressions and sins are the ways that they swerved away from the commands of God. They didn't acknowledge him as their creator. They, They didn't treat him as the one to whom they owe their very existence. And they created their own way to live. They went by their own route, made up their own rules. They lived without any regard to God and they lived without seeking him. But why does that mean that they were dead? Well, this behavior revealed something more sinister. The second thing, they were dead because they belonged to an original corruption. See, in the beginning of of time when God created the world in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in the garden followed the advice of the evil one. They willingly put themselves under the yoke of the devil. That's what they did in Eden. Uh, And he would refuse to let them go. Now Adam and Eve were there as the king and queen of of creation. When they submitted to the serpent, everything in their realm was brought under his power. 
Every subsequent generation has been born of that same corruption. That's what Paul says here. He says, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is a terrifying perspective on the human race. And verse 3 makes clear it is a universal description. It says, all of us also lived among them at one time. Uh, Paul is describing this corruption in the very marrow of our being. He says, we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. So it's saying that there's something in all of us that loves sin. Uh, Something in us makes us sin because we want to sin. Well, back in the Garden of Eden, God lovingly warned that to turn from him would result in death. Adam and Eve turned from him. And death enveloped their whole experience. They were without God. They were without hope. They were inclined towards evil. They were confused. They were corrupted. Their bodies were wearing out and ultimately they perished. You see, the third thing in these verses is they were dead because they were under a sentence of divine condemnation. At the end of verse 3, it puts it like this. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. God's wrath. The just anger of a holy God against those who sin. Now, now Paul is writing this because he's explaining to the Ephesians, God has worked on them an incomparably great power. He wants them to understand their peril. He, He wants them to understand that when they were apart from Christ without God, they were dead. And so were the rest of us. All of us were included. All of us, we were dead. And our our coffin was nailed tight with the world and the flesh and the devil. I wonder if we know that as we sit here in the comfort of this room this afternoon. Hard to grasp the extent of it. We might hear it and say, yeah, well, but I don't feel like it's like that. I don't feel it to be like that. Which is fine, of course, isn't it? Because the dead don't feel themselves to be dead. If this is a true diagnosis of what we are, most of the time we will be oblivious because the dead are dead. And so we listen to what God tells us in his word. This is your peril. It's our peril. And we are to know it. We were dead. We weren't ill. We weren't a bit under the weather. We were in a condition that it was impossible for us to do anything to help ourselves. Now, the, the Christian gospel, the good news, it doesn't flatter us. It flattens us. I wonder if we get that. Now, the message that the Bible tells us is not a message that humanity was doing all right. And Christ comes to give us a leg up. It's not that we were kind of pretty good and nice people and Jesus shows us how to be a bit nicer. The message of the Bible isn't that we were managing okay in life, but we could just do with a bit of help here and there. The message of the Bible is that we were dead, flattened. Our peril was, was, was terrible. And we were hurtling towards a lost eternity and oblivious to it most of the time and obnoxious when we heard about it and utterly helpless. Do you know your peril? Because if we don't get this first bit, then the next bit won't dazzle like it should. Paul writes to them and he says, know your peril. And then verse 4 literally begins, but God. Our second thing, know you are precious. Know you're precious. Uh, At the end of the Lord of the Rings, uh, Samwise Gamgee wakes up uh, from an awful ordeal and he's greeted by Gandalf, who he thought was dead. Spoiler alert. Um, And and Gandalf asks him how he feels, and Tolkien writes this. He writes, 
For a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. And then eventually, how do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel. He waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. But that's what happens in verse 4 of our passage. It's, it's what Tolkien called elsewhere a catastrophe. It's a sudden rush of joy upon peril. But God, let's work our way carefully in this. Now verse 3 is ended by saying we all are by nature deserving of wrath. Verse 4 begins, but God. God who is the Holy One. God who is the one who cannot look upon sin. Who is utterly just. Who is supremely powerful. And is perfectly within his rights to, to, to punish and destroy the sinner. And there can be no complaint. Now we are clay and he is the potter. If he throws us to destruction, there's nothing we can say. And, and God in the Bible, he's so immensely happy in himself. He loses nothing if he doesn't have us. And, and, and if, if God were to act like people act, the best or the worst of people, people like us, if, if we were in God's position here, and, and if we, like God, understood the extent and the awfulness of sin, we would not hesitate for a second to destroy like those like us forever, and we would think we had done the world a favour in doing so. But we are not God. And in the Old Testament, in the prophet Hosea, God says, I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not a man. God is just. God will punish sin, but the prophet Isaiah calls that his strange work. But there's another work for God that is not strange. It's this work we see in verse 4. This God who is rich in mercy. His being is mercy. In the prophet Jeremiah, God says, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and soul. See, verse 4 here bursts into the misery and the despair of our peril. It bursts in with the heart of God himself. His heart that is rich in mercy. Mercy. Mercy necessarily reaches out to misery. It's what mercy is. Mercy is, is a tenderness of heart to the undeserving. And it's that tenderness that breaks into our misery. Now, the only reason that our plight is anything other than always, but God, who is rich in mercy. His being is rich in mercy. It comes from his very nature. It's his joyful work that he does with all his heart and with all his soul. This mercy, it pours out from God. And there's more, of course, isn't there, in verse 4. A plight is plundered for a reason. It's because of his great love for us. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Why does this mercy erupt from the heart of God? An old writer said, it's love which boils up mercy. Love stokes the fires of mercy. It's love guides the flow of mercy and it guides it towards you. Now that's what verse 4 is about. It's about the motives, the, the driving motives that cause salvation. And, and as Paul writes this to the Ephesians, he goes right up high. He goes right into the heart and the will of God. He finds the source of our salvation in the love of God. God loved us. And it's not with a blind eye to verses 1 to 3. It's in full view of our death. 
God loved us when we were wretched and when we were wayward and when God loved us when we had no thoughts of him. God loved us when we were dead in our sins and under the sentence of his just condemnation. As Paul writes to these Ephesians, he oppresses upon them the answer to the question of who they are. And he tells them they were dead and yet, but God, their death has been met with mercy, boundless mercy, because it's mercy that resides in the boundless heart of God. Mercy that is more than enough. Their death is met with mercy. Mercy boiled up by his love. God loved us. Paul presses on them their plight and then presses on them that they are precious. Precious in the only way that matters. Precious in the sight of God Almighty. Loved. The peril of the first three verses is a universal peril. It applies to us all. But but from verse 4 onward, it's not for everyone. Now, verse 8 tells us it concerns those who believe, who've been given faith. You see, those of us here this afternoon who are trusting the Lord Jesus, do do you know what Paul is saying about you right here? Do you see yourself, you're right here written of in this page of Scripture, saying you are precious, you are the object of mercy, you're the location of God's love, it's where God's love is directed, is to you. Now this is a love to be searched deep into. We can't ever go deep enough into it. An old writer said, it is a sea of honey. And if in wading into it, we be swallowed up of it and drowned therein, it is no matter. Now if we are to understand this love right, then we must see it's a love like no other love. Now every other love, it gets drawn by its object. Now, I love cake, there's cake at the back. I love cake because cake draws me to it. I I love my wife because of what she's like. But this is a love that wells up from an infinite source, stirred up by the delight of the one who loves. That's why Paul rams into the middle of verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. And it's so important, he says it again in verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This love that boils up God's mercy, it is gracious. That is, someone said, he loved us nakedly. That means he didn't love us because of anything in us. He doesn't love us for anything that we do. He loves you. He doesn't love your acts, he doesn't love your achievements. He loves you. And so this love cannot fail. He loved us when we were at our very worst. If we fall into sin, his love doesn't change. If we fall apart, his love doesn't dim, not for one moment. It's a gracious love, a love that will stretch as far as it needs to go. And so this love reaches in mercy to rescue. Now, if you're a Christian, do you know that this is talking about you? Put yourself right here. But God, rich in mercy, because that's his nature, this God loved you. We were so miserable and wretched, and yet we are so mercied and loved and graced. Yes, we were dead. Yes, we were depraved. And we can open our eyes and we can look to the full extent of our fallenness. We can, as it were, look our own corpse in its face and say, no matter. 
Look, our most shame-filled memories. And we can say, yet God loves me. He truly loves me. And I will dive into that sea of honey and I will be happily drowned. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Do you know what He did? Do you know what He did because He's rich in mercy? He did the most loving thing imaginable. What He did, Christian, is He joined you to Jesus. That's what God did for you. He says it in verse 5. He made us alive with Christ. In verse 6, He raised us up with Christ. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. With Him in Christ Jesus, united to Christ. Do you know what goes before all of that? Before we could be made alive with Christ and raised with Christ, Christ first must come. He must first come and die. He must first come to us and and be joined to us right in our peril. Because that is the love of God. The love of God that He should send His beloved Son and that that Son of God would enter our situation and would put on our flesh and would humble Himself and He would go down and He would go down and He would take from us the burden of our condemnation and put Himself right in our place because of the love of God. Because of the love of God, the Son of God bore the wrath of God and became Himself a child of wrath. And then the mighty strength of God was exerted. As Paul spoke about at the end of chapter 1, the mighty strength that raised Christ from the dead. His sacrifice had done everything needed. The price for sin had been paid in full and Christ was vindicated and raised and seated now in the heavenly places. God, God loved us. So he joins us to Jesus. The Son of God is the eternal object of the Father's love. There isn't a drop of the Father's love that falls apart from Christ. So for us to be loved, we must be joined to the Beloved. And that's where he put us. He put us right in the Beloved One. So that we are loved forever, infinitely, because we are in Christ Jesus. God loved us, so he joined us to Christ. And when Christ was plunged into our death, we stuck to him. And when he was raised up, we went with him. And now we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. How so? And what even are the heavenlies? Don't know. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now how do we get there? We are bound up in a spiritual union with Christ. So now forever and always we are with him. And one day our bodies will catch up. And we will go as he has gone. We'll go through the veil. Through death itself into unspeakable glory. Our future is indescribably bright. It is indestructibly safe because we are with Christ. That's why Paul says we are saved. Nothing, nothing can touch our eternal happiness in Christ Jesus. That's what baptism shows. Now that's what Amy has done today. As Amy stood outside of the pool picturing herself in her peril, her life outside of Christ, Well, then she confessed her sin. She put her trust in the Lord Jesus. She was joined with him. She went with him into death. She went under the water. She was dead and she was buried with Christ. She's connected to him. And then she was raised up out and went with him. And now she is united in spirit to Christ and seated in the heavenlies. This is who she is. She is loved by God. She is an object of divine mercy. She's right under the flood of grace. She is with Christ, alive with him, raised with him, 
seated with him. Her future is safe and it's all because of Christ. So Amy, don't forget this day. Don't forget your baptism. It's a sign and a seal of your identity. It's who you are. You belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. He will never let you go. This is the answer to the question of who you are. And that's true for all of us who believe. It's true for all of us who will believe. Christ reaches down from heaven by his spirit even today and he calls to us. And he says, will you trust me? Will you trust Christ? Will you trust him even with your peril? Will you trust him with your sin? Would you trust him with your death? Would you trust him with your future? Because everyone who will have him will have him. As Paul writes this, he wants his readers to know their peril. And he wants them to know that they are precious. And then thirdly, he wants them to know their purpose. You see, baptism is a sign of beginnings. It's a sign of a start. It it proclaims something massive. What we've done is made a huge declaration. We've performed a sign that in the life of Amy Gatwood, something has changed forever. No, no. In the life of Amy Gatwood, everything has changed. The whole of Amy is now wholly bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we acted out. That means that Amy now has two purposes according to our passage. First of all, in verse 7. It's in order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Amy's purpose, number one, is that she is a trophy of grace. She's on her way to glory. And there she will see Jesus. And when she sees him, she will be like him. And her eternal delight will be in the loveliness of the Lord Jesus forever and ever and ever. Her constant eternity will be drawing more and more on the grace of God, delighting more and more on that grace. God will be delighted to keep lavishing grace upon her. He will love to keep expressing his kindness to her. On and on and on and on. And Amy will be a trophy of grace for the glory of God forever. That's her purpose number one. Purpose number two, verse 10. We are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Second purpose, Amy is now made new in Christ. And God has good works for her. Works that will honour and serve her saviour. Because that is who she is. She is God's handiwork. She is God's work of art being made to be more like the Lord Jesus. Who are you? No, for Amy, she's declared it to you at the front. She can take this passage. She, she, she knows her peril. She knows she is precious. She knows her purpose. What about the rest of us here this afternoon? Now, do you know who you are? And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your saviour, you can. You can know him as your saviour right now. You can turn to him, speak to him. He will hear you. If you do know Jesus as your saviour, Linger on the mercy of God. Linger on your life bound up in Christ. Now take time to do what this letter to the Ephesians begins with. It begins by saying, Praise, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pray together.
God Almighty, I ask that you would extend your mercy to us here this afternoon. And that by your Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts just a little wider to the wonders of your mercy. May we linger in that mercy. May we wade deeper into that sea of honey. And Lord, if we be swallowed up in it, so be it. May we know more of your great love for us in the Lord Jesus. Amen.